Amen, amen, and amen. You may be seated. Wow. Thank you, team, and good morning, everyone. We're glad you're here today. You know, on a holiday, you're never quite sure if it's just going to be me and Elizabeth and these people up here. Never quite sure who comes, if you go to other places. But we're glad you're here, and we've already met some people who are visiting today, and we're glad you are here. And if this is your first time, we're starting a new series in just a few moments in the book of Ephesians, and it's titled Known. Known. You can know who God is, and you can know the works of God, and you can know the work that He will do in our lives, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But I just want to say thank you to everyone. We're kind of leaving spring and heading into summer now. This is kind of the official, kind of unofficial time. Schools are beginning to end. And I want to say a big thank you to all of you for all that you've done uh, in our groups and all the ministries. We've got some ministries happening this summer with our Shine, and we need some more help with that. If you'd like to participate, that's a uh, evening version of a vacation Bible school for children. Learn more about that out in the lobby if you'd like to help with our youth or with other group areas or with some of our outreaches through the summer, just go out there. We don't do a lot of announcements in the summer because things shift and change, but there's always great opportunity to participate. You can just go to the Connections desk and figure it out. Afterwards, if you want prayer, want to know more about your relationship to God, or just need a moment of silence and prayer after the closing song, come up here. There'll be people here to pray with you. If you'd like to pray with someone, you can do that. If you'd like to pray alone, you can do that as long as you need. This will be open up here as well. And also want to say thank you for your giving. You've been giving, and thank you so much for that. We have boxes all around. You can give online on our app or on our website. Uh, in the old-fashioned way of writing a check and sending it in the mail. People still do that. Thank you. That does still work. For you younger people, there are things called checks. And, uh, but thank you very much for all of you who participate in helping in the ministry financially of this church and of our school. Our school ended on Friday and has had its largest year, I think, ever, and is planning to have even a larger year starting in August as well. So that's growing Church is growing, our ministries are growing, so thank you very much. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, so if you have your Bibles, turn to that, and I'm going to say a, few, a couple of words ahead of time, and then I'm going to have Elizabeth come up and read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14, first section we're going to look at today. Here's the thing, many people think this is the most difficult paragraph in the Bible, now, there's some hard parts in the Bible, aren't there? And then I had several people as I was reading this week say, it's the most difficult part of the Bible. And here we are on a, a holiday weekend and we choose to pick the most difficult part of the Bible. Well, we're gonna look at this. I know I'm gonna answer some questions and I know I'm gonna raise some questions, but it's an opportunity for all of us to learn. What is the subject? The subject that we're gonna get to in just a moment is the will of God. What is the will of God? All of us have different impressions on how this works, so I wanna just share a couple of the impressions and then we're gonna get into the Bible. First of all, do you remember that old, there were some old movies years ago, black and white ones, where there would be an empty stage and there would be a spotlight and the actor would be in the dark and then the actor would jump into the spotlight. You remember seeing that? And then the spotlight moves and the actor chases the spotlight over here. 
And then all of a sudden the spotlight moves over there and the actor is chasing the spotlight over here so that he can always be in the light. And the light moves. As soon as he's in the light, the light moves. A lot of people think that's what the will of God is. Once you found it, it's gone. I hear this all the time. You don't say it that way, but you say, I go, how did you move to Boca? God told me to, it was his will. And then a year later, someone moves and I go, why are you leaving Boca? God told me to move. It was like, we're jumping and jumping and jumping. And maybe he did. I'm not being facetious, but there's a lot of movement in the will of God in people's minds. It just jumps from place to place. Why'd you leave that job? Well, God told me to. Why'd you take this job? God told me to. Why did you do this? God told me, and we're jumping back and forth. And we need to be careful that we don't presume on God. So I've made half of you mad already. <laughs> so let me make the other half mad. So there's, other, there's two other ways people look at it. I'll look at a man, a pastor from a generation ago. He died so many years ago. Uh, but I think it was in the 1950s and 60s, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. His name was A.W. Tozer, a great man and a great devotional leader. And he said the will of God was like a ship, like a ship. And in that ship, once you have, the ship was the sovereignty of God, it's heading in a direction. And once you're on the ship, you can do what you want as long as you're moral about it. So in other words, if you're on the first deck, on the top deck, on the medium deck, if you have lunch now, if you have lunch later, you know, when you're on a ship, you have all these choices you can make. You're on the ship and they're all moral choices. And when you make an immoral choice, it's wrong and you need to seek forgiveness. And it's interesting because a lot of people believe that and it makes sense because it's pretty much comes out of the concept of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, God said, you may eat of every fruit except what? One. So in other words, if you eat the mangoes today and the pineapples tomorrow, or you eat the pineapples today and the mangoes tomorrow, it didn't really matter because God gave you a moral place to play in, almost like a sandbox. And as long as you stay in that sandbox, the moral decision is okay. So in other words, when someone says, should I live in Dallas or Chicago or Boca? They're all three moral decisions, you see? Because God may, in this view, God may not be as interested in where you're located, but what you do in your location. Do you see that? It makes a lot of sense. It's not about so much location, it's about what you do. This is what A.W. Tozer taught, and a lot of people are here in this as long, so you have these moral decisions. So in other words, Today, I chose to wear a black shirt. I have a white shirt in my closet. I have a blue shirt in my closet. I have a red shirt in my closet. I have another shirt in my closet. And I have a black shirt in my closet. And today, I chose a black shirt because all four or five of those were moral choices. Now, if I chose to do something immoral, then it's a bad choice. But if there's a large choice of moral choices and they're all under the will of God... So that's over here. Now there's another group of people that would say, no, that's not true. Every choice is determined by God. God determined that I would wear a black shirt today. God determined that I should be in Boca Raton this year. God determined that I should be doing this and going to that school and 
uh, having this job and having that job. And there's more a sense that God has determined this. So you see, there's kind of this, that God is in charge of it all, and this, that God is in charge of the big decisions, but he's allowed us to make some of the, what I'll call the small decisions. Do you see the difference? And then there's every version in between. And there's even versions further off that, you know, you don't even use the Bible, you only use kind of your own feelings, and there's versions way over here that's fatalism. I'm not talking about those, but those that would be in our evangelical. And there's people in here that believe all of these. Now, the question is, what does the Bible say about this? This is tough. And I'm not mocking one or the other, or even the jumping around part, because these are deep waters, and this is tough, but everybody wants to know what the will of God is, if you are a follower of God, right? I want to know, am I in the will of God? And so, Elizabeth, come on up. She's going to read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14, and this talks about this and many things around this. So let's listen as she reads. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. Earlier in the year when we were going through our two studies, the Gospel of Mark and discipleship, you remember that? Do you remember what we said the five areas of being a disciple are? I'm not going to put them up on the screen. I want you just to think through them. First of all, we said a true follower of Jesus Christ loves and shares Jesus. Loves Jesus and shares, meaning go and make disciples, right? The Great Commission. And then we said he or she has a calling, a calling from God, to God, from God, for God. So we have a calling from him and we have a calling to do something with it. 
And then we talked about character, that a true disciple is living in some form with character. And then the fourth one was community, which is what we talked about today, the beginning of the church, is that we need to live in community. And the fifth one then was to use our gifts, to use the gifts God has given us. That's why your gifts are different than your gifts, they're different than your gifts, and different than your gifts. So everybody is playing out the will of God a little differently. And that's what makes it a little confusing. But here's the thing that's important. We need to understand that it's about God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, one of my, uh, not mentors, but one who I read, he died um, about 15 years before I was even born. He was a part, uh, he was a pastor in Germany, and then he was a part of the resistance against the Nazis in World War II. He got captured and ultimately was killed for his faith and killed for his anti-Nazi beliefs. And he actually, I think, wanted to overthrow Hitler and the Nazi regime. And of course, he got killed just a week or two before the Allies um, uh, liberated all the concentration camps and one of which he was in. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I just wanna read part of this to kind of transition us from discipleship to the will of God, because it all plays together. Discipleship means adherence to Christ. And because Christ is the object of that adherence, it must take form of discipleship. An abstract understanding of Christ, a doctrinal system, a general religious knowledge on the subject of grace or on forgiveness of sins renders discipleship unnecessary. And in fact, they positively exclude any idea of discipleship, whatever, and are essentially hostile to the whole conception of following Christ. With an abstract idea, it is possible to enter into a relation of formal knowledge, to become enthusiastic about it, and perhaps even put it into practice. But it can never be followed in personal obedience. Christianity without living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Discipleship is bound to Christ as the mediator, and where it is properly understood, it necessarily implies faith in the Son of God as the mediator. Only the mediator, the God-man, can call people to follow him. So what we're talking about today is not a theological concept. I went to Bible school and I have three degrees in theology. It is not about that. It is about a relationship with the almighty God who has a will for us and has a desire for us. So let me give you two opening thoughts as we open the scriptures. Thought number one, God's will is about God, not us. Let's start there. God's will is about God. If I could make a corollary statement, the Bible is about God, not about me. We so often think the Bible is the book about me, about you, what I can get out of it. It's a book about what we can understand about God, right? You hear me say this all the time. And the second is this. We are holy because God has set us apart not because we have been good. Let me repeat that. We are holy because God set us apart, 
not because we have been good. Today we sang, holy, holy, you are worthy, O Lord, right? We didn't say, holy, holy, Bill, you are worthy of our praise. Holy, holy, Sue and Pedro and Anita. No, it's God who is holy, right? And so now let's open the scriptures and begin to understand it. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So it opens up the will of God to the saints. Now here the word saints, some of your Bible says holy ones. What it should say is ones who are of the holy. You see, saints has a uh, connotation nowadays of good people. St. Paul, John II, Saint, or John Paul II, St. Mother Teresa, St. John the Divine, St. Um, Mother Teresa or Teresa of Avalon, whatever it may be, right? We have all these names of good people and we call them saints, meaning that we've turned the word saint into if you're good, you're a saint. And if you're not, you aren't. But that's not what it means here. What it means here is that you are a child of the Holy One. We are holy because God is holy. We are not holy because of the goodness that we've done. That's how we have to start this out. So when we understand the will of God, it's not that I am doing good things and I must be in the will of God. A lot of people do good things and are not in the will of God. I see a lot of good things happening out there. That doesn't mean they're in the will of God. And it says here, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So let me give you two realities about this passage. Reality number one, this is about the activity of God. The activity of God, this concept that we're gonna go over, all these big words that I'm going to speak of, some more than others, because there's so many big words in this passage that Elizabeth just read. It's about the activity of God, not so much about the activity of us. Understanding the will of God is a lot about God and less about us. And the other, and I put in quotes, Paul's sense of geography. Now I have to use the word geography because you know I love geography. I just love talking about the world and all the geographic aspects of it. But look, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, that's geography, and are in Christ, that's geography. Now here's the point that most people miss. If you were to say, what is Paul's mega theme in all his writings? It's we are in Christ Jesus. It's 160 times, I think it's actually 167 times, Paul says that we are in Christ Jesus, we are in him, we are in the Lord, we are in and uses some derivative of Christ Jesus. So this is his major theme in the entire writings of all of Paul's books, is that we are in Christ. You go to Colossians, it's all about being in him and by him and through him. He uses some other prepositional words as well, but it's being in him. And so the geography of this is we are in Christ. In this short 14 verses, it's over 10 times he says it. When you read it, in Christ, in him. And you'll see it as we walk through this, that there's it. So today, we are in God's will in Boca, in Christ. 
If you're online and you're somewhere else, say, in wherever you are and in Christ. See, I'm not just in God's will because I'm in Boca. I'm in God's will because I'm in Christ, Jesus. And we've gotta start thinking and stop thinking that it's about the place I'm in all the time and it's about the place I work all the time and the place I live all the time. It's important, we have to live, work, and reside and go to school at certain places and we ask God to help us find those places, absolutely. But then we leave out in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus in Boca. Well, you're a follower of Jesus in Boca, but you are also in Christ. I'm in Christ in Boca. Do you see there's a play on words? And where we really struggle with this, it's only three or four times do we talk about Jesus being in us. You know, we, we want Jesus to be, accept Jesus in you and in us, and it's there, it's later in Ephesians. But there are hundreds of times in the Bible where it says we are in Christ. So the first thing to understand is that we have to be in Christ. If you wanna be in God's will, you have to be in Christ. So in other words, you are learning about Christ, you're seeing Christ, you're praying, you're singing, you're worshiping, you're giving, all your things are pointed towards Christ because we need to be in Christ. Now, there's three thoughts I wanna give to you today and kind of divide this up. It's not easy. The first starting, first two, of course, is grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna leave that alone because I'll come back to that later in another time. Verse three and four is kind of point one. He says that we are blessed and we are chosen by God to live blamelessly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. So God has blessed you. In other words, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, if you are in Christ, you are blessed from him because he blesses you when you are in Christ. Now we have a concept that blessing means more. That's a distinctly American concept. Blessing is not always more. In other words, you all have a better job, you are more blessed than these people who have a lesser job, you all have more money in the bank, so you are blessed more than these people who don't have as much money in the bank is a false understanding of what blessing is. Blessing means that God's face is turned towards you, that his attention is towards you, and when God's attention is towards you, you are blessed, and how are you blessed in Christ? It's all about Christ. You know, one of our... Um, very important uh, foundational concepts in this church is that we are Christ-centered. And people go, why don't you just say you're Bible-centered? Well, we are Bible-centered and the Bible's the very most important book, et cetera, but we are Christ-centered because God calls us to be in Christ. And so that's important to understand. It says that then the second thing, he says we're chosen by God. Okay, so this begins, God has chosen us. Now the point here becomes this, because you can use the word election, choosing, there's other words, foreknowledge in Romans chapter eight, all these words. Does that mean that God did this? I choose you three here. I'm not gonna choose you, and I'm gonna choose you, and I'm not gonna choose you, and I'm gonna choose you. I like you, I'm gonna choose you. I like you guys, you're in. No, yes, no, yes. Did God do that? Is this what God does? Is God capricious in his choosing? No, 
what he has done, and it's interesting we're doing it on the birthday of the church, God has chosen the church. He has chosen us who are part of the church. Now, if you believe he personally chose you over everybody else, you're over here sitting. If you think he chose you as the church, you're kind of over here a little more. Either way, he chose us. God has chosen us. But what's interesting is he no longer speaks of geography through the rest of the book of Ephesus. He lets us know it's in Ephesus. Everything else is about Christ. Every, all the geographic terms in the balance of the book are about Christ. I'm in Christ. Now, we all know we're in Ephesus, but now we're in Christ. So now we get, we get to the hard part. If you thought this was hard, let's get to the hard part. Verse five. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, repeating it, in the beloved. What is the beloved? The beloved is the church. So he predestined us and adopted us. So here's something that happened. So those who are over here, he predestined us. What does that mean? Before the foundation of the earth, he chose us. And the answer is yes, he is. Even though I kind of tend to be a little over here, I have to admit that God predestined us and chose us before the foundation of the earth. There's no way to get around it. He did do that. But I don't think he unchose other people or didn't choose other people. I don't know how this works. Remember last week I said there's paradoxes in the Bible? There's things that we cannot understand. Why? Because there's an infinite God doing incredibly infinite things and we're finite, limited people, only able to do and think limited things. So we're looking at a infinite concept from limited eyes and mind. And I tell you what, it can't be done perfectly. And even everyone I've read on all parts of this little line here all said that we cannot know the exact answer because we all do not know God's mind entirely. We know a piece of God's mind. First Corinthians 13 says we look through like a keyhole to see God and we see through that keyhole of who God is, but God is much bigger than the keyhole and looking through where we can see a piece of him. So he's predestined us to be adopted. This is a beautiful thing. You and I have been adopted into the family of God. We are a child of the king. This is important because a lot of people get depressed and they go, does God really love me and all these things? It goes back to, um, for those of you who love history, people always say, tell me a history story, a very short one. Victoria. Princess Victoria in the early 1800s, she did not know she was going to inherit the kingdom because they didn't tell her. It was called the Kensington system. She was the heir to the king. There was no son of George, whatever, the third or fourth, excuse me for not remembering all these names. And so it went to his niece, but nobody told his niece because they wanted to control her. It's called the Kensington system. And it was interesting when she found out she was going to be queen, her whole life changed. She didn't become queen for a year or two later when her uncle died, but she found out she was going to be queen because she was adopted to be, and I don't mean that 
I mean that in quotes, adopted to be the queen. You and I have been adopted into the family and many of us don't know it. But the fact that you don't know it doesn't make it true. She didn't know she was gonna be queen, but she was still gonna be queen. If you're a child, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are his child. Whether you believe it or not, you are a child of the king. So when you get depressed and God's not interested in me, He is. He is your father. He is interested in you because you have been adopted and you become a part of the beloved, the church. And then he goes on in verse 7 and says, in him, again, that in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Here's the negative part. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. It took blood to redeem us. In other words, it took a death to take us from death to life. We talked about this at Easter. You can pay for your sin or Jesus can pay for your sin. No one else can pay for your sin. I cannot pay for your sin. I can pay for some of your sins. If you steal something, I can go back to the proprietor and pay him or her, but I cannot pay for your sins when it comes to the heavenlies. You can pay for your sins because it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God comes through Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed by his blood, not by my blood, not by the blood of the lamb, the little sheep lamb, but by the blood of the lamb. That's a core belief in in the gospel. And then he goes on and says, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. This is important to understand because forgiveness means it is gone. There's a sense of forgiveness and forgetting. God doesn't forget, he doesn't forget like we might forget, but he forgets it in the sense of you gotta pay for it anymore. Your sins are forgiven according to the riches of his grace. And this is where grace comes in. The grace is that your sins have been forgiven you've been redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been chosen. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We deserve something with our sin. What is it we deserve? Death. We deserve separation from God. We have separation from God, but because we are believers, he has redeemed us, forgiven us, adopted us, chose us. That's his will for us. His will for us is that our sins be forgiven and we are adopted into the kingdom. That's his will for us. And then he goes on in verse eight, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's kind of a transitional statement saying, I'm, God through Christ just gave it all to you. He's not holding anything back. And then lastly, in verse nine and following, kind of that whole section, making known, God's plan is revealed here. By making known, this whole, uh, the title of our series is known because can we really know who God is? And can we know what God wants us to do? The answer is yes, because he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So in other words, you can know the will of God for your life. You can know it. People go, well, what is it for me? 
Well, that's a part of what you and God have to deal with. But the main part is that you are in Christ, you're following Christ, you're reading the Bible, you're praying, you're connecting with him, and you're doing what God has told you to do. Now, here's an interesting thing. The fifth part of discipleship in our church is using your gifts. Now, we're talking about spiritual gifts, but here's also the reality of this. How many, do we have any engineers, architects, drafts people, kind of the technical sciences? Raise your hand if you're in that. We have a few here. Okay, good. You're gifted in that area. You're an electrical engineer, a mechanical engineer, an architect, a drafts person, whatever it may be, you're, you're heading in that direction. Can I tell you, I'm not heading in that direction. Can I tell you, I can make the outlandish statement, it is not God's will for me to be an electrical engineer. It's not. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the understanding. I don't have the aptitude for it. I'm good with the soft science, the social sciences, the theology. I'm good with that. I'm good with business. I'm good with sales. I get that. I don't get this. Does that mean, I mean, so I know part of God's will already because I know that if I were to go into the sciences, and I know how I struggled even in the sciences in high school, that it is not God's will, maybe it's God's will for me to take a class and understand it a little. All of you want, anybody in computers, raise your hand. I mean, making of computers, software, raise your hand. There's a few of you here. Well, all of us use computers, but rare is the person that knows how to make the computer, how to really understand the backside of it, and especially software and all that it's going on. And so the understanding of I get how to run a spreadsheet. I can do spreadsheets. I don't get how to make the backside of them. Do you see that? It's not God's will. So you go, is it God's will for me to go into? Well, you gotta see, did God give you the giftedness in it? Has God gifted you in these areas? So it's, it's easier, and I don't mean this facetiously, but there is some ease in understanding. God is allowing you to do what he's called you to do. I was with a friend this week who's a lawyer, and he said he loves being a lawyer. He's gifted in it. He's been doing it his whole life. He loves contracts. He loves the fine print. I'm going, okay, someone does. I'm glad someone loves the fine print. You know, the rest where you just put agree at the bottom and push that button and go yes. And someone has read those six pages before you. And you go, there's someone who loves that. Why? Because that's so important and that's needed and that's it. it's important. But I'm not called to write the fine print of contracts. I'm called to help put people together and make things and do church and all of that. Do you see the difference here? There's a calling that you have and you need to go, is that something that interests you? Is that something God's gifted you in? And then when you go to the spiritual side of this, you go, has God gifted me to work with, name anything, children, recovery, um, outreach, adults, youth, etc.? What does God really interest you in? What are you interested in? And maybe that's where God is calling you into because he gave you the, the gifts to do it. And please understand that. So it's not, we make it so hard, but maybe it's like, let's go and do it. Because here's the interesting thing. In verse 11, he goes on, well, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We know the things in heaven, we kind of talk about what are the things on earth? They're the things you are doing. God is connecting heaven and earth. There's a connection between the will of God up here and what you are doing down here in Christ. Now, if you just say, I don't give a rip about Christ, I'm just gonna go do what I wanna do, that's different. But if you say, I wanna do it in Christ, what does it mean to do it in Christ? That means to share Christ, to show the love of Christ, to do the things of Christ as you're doing what God has called you to do. And that's why it's different for you than you than you than me, because we are all so individual. Why is that? Let me digress for a moment. I've shared this story, but there's a new part to the story that just happened. Right after 9-11, we started traveling again, and there's this new thing called Homeland Security, right? Whoever thought, I mean, we used to be able to go down gates and drop our family members right to the gate, and then all this thing happened with Homeland Security, right? So Homeland Security, so I'm starting to travel again, going all over the world, and I go to all these places, and all of a sudden, I'm in port of entry in Miami, and they arrest me. So I get arrested, you know, and you don't realize that there's a prison in these big airports, and there's a magistrate in these airports, and there are big guns in these airports, and they throw the drug dealers and the people that bring the parrots in illegally and me in the same place. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in this holding jail cell thing in no windows and I go, why am I here? And they go, we don't have to tell you why you're here. And so finally I get out. I don't really understand why. And then about six months later, I'm traveling again, Port of Miami. This time I have my daughter who at that point was maybe eight years old with me and we go to jail. She goes, I mean, with guns and everything, right down the, you know, when you put your passport in, we're being guns. I mean, I just never saw anything like this. And Anna's going, Daddy, are they arresting us? I go, I think so. And so Anna and I go to jail. So, and they let us out. Okay, eventually I go, come on, people, really, I'm a criminal. Third time it happens. And I go, what is up? And they go, there's a man with your name born in the same year and the same month as you who's an arms dealer. Exact same everything. Arms dealer. In Iraq. And uh, post all that and arms dealer. So I go, okay. I get letters from our congressman. I get letters from our mayor. None of it works. So finally, I get an interview with Homeland Security. And I've been in almost 100 countries. They went to every country and said, what were you doing there? What were you doing there? I was 12 years old. I don't remember. But what were you doing there? What were you doing? Went to all the countries. And finally, they gave me a number. It's called a redress number. Now it's called a known traveler number. And I can go and never get stopped for that reason. Might get stopped for liquids or something. But I'm not getting stopped for being an arms dealer. So all that happened, last week, Elizabeth and I are having dinner, lunch, with friends of ours, and they brought their brother um, there and his wife, and they were, so we had never met him, and we're meeting him, and I go, what do you do? He goes, I'm retired, and I used to sell government property. And I go, what kind of government property? And he said, arms, legitimate arms. 
You know, I'd sell it from one country to another and another and another. And I go, what a great job. He's telling me all this great stuff. And I said, you know, I was accused of being an arms dealer once. He goes, why? I go, because they thought I had, I was the, he goes, I know that man. I've met that man. And he was not on the top 10 most wanted list, but almost like the second 10. He said, he was an evil man. He had my name. He, born the same, I think, the same week or even day of the year of the same year. He's since passed and all the rest. But here's the thing. Who are you? Who are you? God has chosen you before the foundation of the world to be in Christ would people even know it? Homeland Security didn't know I was the Bill Mitchell that was supposed to be the Bill Mitchell. They confused me with the other Bill Mitchell. Would people confuse you with not being in Christ? That's such an important thing. Now let's just look at these last couple of ones and draw to a close. So we're in verse uh, 11. In him, again, Paul just keeps repeating it. If you're not getting it, just underline it every time you see in him, in love, in the beloved, in Christ, in God, in Jesus. We have obtained an inheritance. See, you're adopted. You have an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, being according to the counsel of his will. Okay, we get it. God has predestined us according to the counsel of his will so that we who were first to hope. Now, here's a picture of this. There is a part that you and I have to play in this. God's over here adopting us and predestining us and choosing us and giving us an inheritance, but now he's saying we have to hope. If you really believe all that God has done, wouldn't it give you hope? Shouldn't we have hope and understanding we have an inheritance from the king of kings? If I was Victoria and knew I had the inheritance of the British Empire, I'd be pretty excited. You know what? I have the inheritance of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In him you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. You see, there is a sense of us doing something. You and I have to do something. It says we hope in it and we believe in it. So for those who say it's all God and not us, there is a piece of it that is us. But those of you who say it's all us and not God, that's wrong. I don't know if it's a 99.1 or what. It's probably a hundred and point very little because God probably already gives us the faith to believe. But we have to believe in Jesus Christ. So you are in Jesus Christ, but you have to hope in Jesus and you have to believe in Jesus to really understand what things are on earth and in heaven, which is the will of God. And then he says, you were sealed with a promise. What is the seal? 
The seal is the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. The seal is the ring, the signet ring that says, I have given it to you, and I have given it to you as a guarantee of your inheritance. On Pentecost, that first Pentecost in early Acts, 2,000 years ago, what was it that began the church? It was the coming of the seal of the guarantee of the inheritance, which was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here, and he dwells with you if you are a follower and believer in Jesus Christ. And that is the guarantee that you have that you are adopted into the family of God. It is such a beautiful thing. And that's what the will of God is. It's nothing more or less than that. We have the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't tell you whether you should move tomorrow to Dallas, or you should move to Chicago, or you should stay in Boca Raton. I can't tell you that. I can pray with you. There's issues you gotta deal with, that family and job and all of this. But please understand, I'm gonna say, but are you in Christ when you go in Dallas? Are you in Christ when you stay in Boca? Are you in Christ when you decide to move to Western North Carolina? Are you still in Christ? Because that is the key to understanding the will of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me close. We've been getting a lot of economics lessons in the news, haven't we? This debt ceiling and all this stuff, it's like, goodness gracious. There's so much going on, right? You gotta be an economist to understand what's going on. Well, there's a concept in, in economics called zero sum, zero sum. I'm gonna tell you what it means real quick. It's not an economics lesson, but what it means is there's a, a finite amount of resources, and when a resource is moved from here to here, that means this is minus and this is plus. So if I have $100 and I give you $10, I have $90 and you have $10. That's zero sum. When I give away all my 90 left dollars, I have zero dollars. That's the whole concept of debt and overpayment and all the problems we're in because the economy is zero sum unless you start making the money and you start printing the money. This is not an economics on that. I'm not gonna say whether I like it or not. I can give you that later. But let's think of God. God's over here choosing us before the foundation of the world. The Bible says he created us out of nothing. That means he had zero there and he created something. He created this thing called earth all the way down through these thousands of years to Boca Raton, all the way around all of Boca Raton to 4th Avenue, all the way around to 4th Avenue to 601 Northwest 4th Avenue, here we are. All this creation is going on, and it's new, because the Bible says we are new creatures. So it's not a zero sum, because we think God only has so much up here, and when God gives it out to you, he doesn't have enough to give out to you. And when God's given out, it's all. No, because he's the creator of things. He creates things. And here's the beautiful thing. We all know that, you're saying, Bill, I get it but do you get that you're a creator as well? And the way you are a creator is because you have the Holy Spirit in you. So 
When you do give something, and I'll just use money as an example, it could be time, energy, your talents, your abilities, whatever. But when you do give that $100 away, you do give that gift, God says he's gonna multiply it. And that 100 may become two times, four times, 10 times, or even 100 times. You see, because God's in the business of creating. He's not in the business of destruction. And if we are in God's will, then what we do is not a zero-sum game. Maybe at work, when you work 40 hours, you get X, and then if you only work 35, you get X minus five hours. That's a zero-sum game. But in God's economy, when you do things for God, it grows. And it grows, and it grows. The examples I gave of two families where one person led another person and the whole family came to Christ over 20 years, that's one person leading another, leading another, leading another, leading another. See, that's discipleship. When you help a person, you're helping them, but you're helping so much more. You have no idea what you're doing because God is taking care of all the results. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you because he said he promised it to us and he's with us. And if we believe that, it's an amazing thing. Can you help change people's lives? In the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. In your life, you can. I give you 100 bucks, you get 100 bucks worth of goods. In the power of Christ, that goes like this. So think about what you can do in God's will, because remember, it's about God, not about us. What is it he wants us to do in this world this summer? to be and do his will. Amen and amen and amen. Let's pray.